Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 791, air date October 6th, 2020. We're going to be starting. We're live on Instagram. We just went live. Michelle, I need the connector over here for this. No, no, not for that. The, this connector, someone pulled out. There we go. Hold on, I'm going to go get all, all my direct connector here. There we go. Otherwise... We do not get the the connection that we need there. Sorry about that. So we are live on Instagram, on Facebook, on Twitter, as well as YouTube. As many of you know, about uh, a week ago, one week ago, the Secretary of State of Massachusetts, who I was exposing for election fraud, contacted Twitter. Remember, the First Amendment was created so we as a public could actually expose and critique the government. So the government contacted Twitter and told them to shut me down because I was sharing public documentation showing that the state of Massachusetts had actually destroyed ballot images. And uh, it's quite amazing that this is occurring and none of the mainstream media will ever cover this because they're all part of the problem. But regardless, we're back on all, all platforms. And I'm really happy to let you know that we have two really cool guests today. I have one of our volunteers who drove with her son all the way or came from all the way from Nebraska to support our campaign. We get people, it's not uh, extra, uh, it's, it's quite becoming commonplace that we get people all over the country literally coming into Massachusetts to help our campaign. That's why this campaign was such an extraordinary campaign. We know we won this campaign on a landslide and then they had to commit election fraud to steal it away, not from me, but from the working people of Massachusetts and from working people all over this country uh, who supported this campaign. And But we don't back away. That's not what hardworking people do. We escalate our struggle. As many of you know, we're moving this campaign to a uh, to a writing write-in campaign. And just to give you a high-level idea of what that is, I encourage everyone to go to shivaforsenate.com. So if you go to the website shivaforsenate.com and bring it up, um, you'll actually see the main page of the campaign. We've changed it, which says, write in Dr. Shiva U.S. Senate and stop election fraud. And the other guest we have today is Gary, who's one of the uh, original inventors, one of the first engineers who worked on one of the earliest uh, electronic digital voting systems. So we're, Gary and I are going to talk shop a lot. You guys are going to learn a lot at a high level. We're going to review some of the materials I've done before. But our goal with our campaign is to educate everyone on how systems work political systems, engineering systems, but the fundamental principles of systems. So you're going to learn about voting systems today at the sort of at the uh, at the architecture level. And you'll really gain an appreciation of how many holes that they purposely left in there. So states or for, the, for that matter, uh, people who control these election systems can turn on election fraud. They can literally flip on election fraud when someone like me, one of us comes from below and actually starts perturbing their power structure. And this is embedded into these voting systems. And you see, I've talked about it before, but sometimes it's good to repeat this. So I encourage everyone, we'll come back to this, to go to Shiva for Senate. And first of all, let everyone know, wherever you are in the world, let everyone know that we are uh, explosively growing our campaign. We've gotten requests for another thousand lawn signs. We have people who are really upset. We're putting out close to, um, uh, 1.5 million of these incredible cards that I'll come back to and want to talk about. These are these cards which say, write in Dr. Shiva, U.S. Senate, 
uh, stop election fraud. In order to do that, you have to have thousands of volunteers. The other campaigns have no volunteers. They got nobody. Okay. We actually have real volunteers. They don't have any campaign. It's all top down driven. Ours is bottoms up. But before I get into our, Gary and I's discussion, I want to introduce Crystal Ellis. Crystal, come on up here. Um, I, I want to, Crystal, uh, come on in. So, so Crystal is from Nebraska and her son Trey also came up from Nebraska. So Crystal, why don't you give it, everyone a little bit of idea of how you learned about our campaign, why you got involved and why you guys flew, you and your son, all the way from Nebraska here and what you're doing here. Just You can just share with people. Well, geez, um, I found you on Facebook um, around, obviously, uh, when the coronavirus all hit. And it's Look at the camera honestly right there. Yeah. Um, the most uh, genuine, sincere, authentic campaign I've ever been a part of, and I've been a part of a few. So uh, as soon I just knew it, I'm like, this is what I'll, I'll spend my time doing. Yep, so we, we decided to, to come on out, like, why not? And other people have, right? So, and I know other people who want to. But it's a pretty interesting that you and your son came. And what have you been doing the last week here since you've been here? Oh, geez. <laughs> so I've been putting out cards, uh, meeting people. I've made a lot of friends. Uh, first, I made them online, obviously, because I don't live here. Um, so we became friends online. And then when I came in, obviously, we've connected. Um, some of the best friendships, some of the best people I've ever met. It's like you just know that you came to cross paths with those people for a reason. And um, it, it's just really a godsend, all of it. It's what actually got me through the last six, seven months without all this doom and gloom coming down around me. It just kept me focused, which helped me um, as a caregiver uh, for my father and just for my family to just even continue not to feel sorry for myself on a daily basis, basically. Um, it's just the honest truth, you know? Um, so it was great to meet all these people and I'm so glad to be here. And uh, sometimes I, I think, you know, gosh, I wish I could just stay for the rest of the month. You can stay here. <laughs> I know, but my dad, I gotta get home. All right. But I, otherwise I Thank swear you. I would. But, but Crystal came out to us. We did three rallies on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Yes, we, we did a rally. Rallies. We had a great rally in front of the Secretary of State. Mm -hmm. We uh, helped you know, do mailers. She helped do mailers. Yeah, yeah, Crystal helped do mailers for bumper stickers and we went to the rally on the Boston Common, mm -hmm. where with only four hour notice, about 60, 70 people showed up. Right. And then we recruited, she helped help us recruit volunteers. And then we went to Springfield, which is all the way in Western Mass. Right. We recruited more volunteers and we gave out close to, out yeah, we gave out close to 10, 10 200,000 of these cards for distribution. That's the kind of uh, feedback we have. Yeah, that's it's a lot. It's a lot of boxes, yeah. a lot of cards for sure. But, um, yeah. but we appreciate your coming, Crystal. No, Thank I you so much. You know what yeah. you're doing. So if you're a real patriot, be sure to. Trey, why don't you come over here and say hello too? Any way you can. Any way you can participate. Thank you. <laughs> this is uh, Crystal's son, Trey. You can just say hello. Hi, everybody. Good Great. to see you. Okay. Shoot for Senate. Exactly. <laughs> Two people from Nebraska, the Midwest, the heartland of America. But thank you. Yes. Um, so anyway, Crystal and Trey, we're really happy to have them here. But we have, this is a bottoms up working person's campaign. Crystal takes care of her father. She has her own jewelry business. Everyone in our campaign works for a living. No one is paid on this campaign. No one. The, the, 
we all the money that we raised, we put into lawn signs and bumper stickers. We didn't pay consultants. We then plowed that into TV and radio ad. We took professional TV and radio ads that we developed out there. And that's what scared the establishment so much. Remember, the establishment is both Republicans and Democrats. And you have to be foolish in 2020 to think that Republicans and Democrats are different. And remember, Trump was not a Republican or Democrat. He actually made fun of Republicans. All right. So let's be clear that you have to start voting for people, not, you know, voting for Toyota or voting for Honda, Republican or Democrat. That's what the awakening needs to take place. And many of you know, my journey um, has been really uh, to understand systems. You know, I have a number of four degrees from MIT, but separate from that, I grew up as a working class kid in New Jersey, working very hard, learning from everyday working people what it meant to work hard and solve problems. The degrees essentially gave me the quote unquote credibility. So when some, you know, it's hard for people now to attack me, they don't know what to say. They just have to call me a conspiracy theorist. So they have to make vile comments or racist organizations like Wikipedia have to try to lock their pages or people have to try to throw me off Twitter. That's the sort of the violent, quote unquote, violence that they have to commit on me to try to do character assassination. But that's fine because I've been through that most of my life, you know. Um, but today I want to review with everyone, um, you know, the fundamental uh, framework, the engineering system framework of these election systems. And we're, I just want everyone to say hello to uh, uh, Gary. Gary's. Uh, yeah, Gary to the stream. Gary may just want to say hello and we'll bring Gary back here. Gary's from, Gary's out in British Columbia, right, Gary? Yep. Hi, everybody. Good to be on the show. Yeah, so we're really happy to have Gary on the show. Gary had seen three or four of my videos. He'd seen me, and then he sent me a long email saying, you know, I'm one of the guys who developed one of the four, first four inventors, or the, 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 the four guys who worked on the early electronic voting system. So you, we have a real treat here for you. Um, and again, as many of you know, when I explain these things, we try to make the explanations easily accessible so everyone can understand. And that's what we're going to do today. But uh, the takeaway that we want people to understand is that these voting systems, the modern voting systems, very different perhaps than when they originally were designed. When people, when engineers really had to design sort of stronger systems, they've essentially been done in a way that you, they're created to enable election fraud, which means that a flip of a flip of a switch, uh, or with turning off certain settings, um, the local election officials who control these machines can actually enable election fraud, and it's quite remarkable that that's allowed. So we're going to talk about that. But before I, I, I go into that, and Gary, this will probably be some review for you. Let me just uh, discuss a little bit about something I talked about earlier which are some very foundations of, uh, of these systems and give a little background so everyone starts understanding uh, before we jump into these systems, some very, very basic fundamentals. So the first thing I wanna talk about, and those of you on Instagram, if you wanna go onto YouTube, you can see it there, um, the slides I'm sharing. But first of all, let me go back to first grade. I don't know what they teach in first grade anymore, but at least when I was in first grade, they taught you how to count, okay? And we used to count uh, uh, with a number system called the integers, right? So integers are whole numbers, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and so on until, you know, infinity. But you notice that these were called integers. And if you remember back to your grade school, these are called whole numbers, okay? 
they're, they're whole numbers, which means um, there's no fractions or decimals, right? It's one, two, three, four, five, six. There's no period. There's no fractions. And maybe later on, like in second or third grade, um, you were introduced to a different number system. By the way, these were called integers. And again, as I said, these are whole numbers. And later on, maybe in second or third grade, you started learning decimals or what were known as fractions. And typically you had the number like one and then you had a period, which was called the decimal point, and then another number called, you know, uh, the, the, dec you know the fraction of, of a number, typically the fraction of a tenth of a number, right? Or it could be the hundredth of a number. So in this case, 1.1 is one and one over 10, one tenth. And 2.75 is two and 75 over 100, or 3.01 is three and one out of 100 and so on. So these were called decimals, you know, a fractional units of numbers, okay? So very different system and it's decimals and they're not whole numbers. All right, now you could have the negative and the positive of these. So this is something, again, very basic. Um, and just to put this out, out there, um, if, you were a, uh, if you were counting votes, and, and, and Gary, I'm sure we, we could bring you in, if, if we're counting votes, you would assume votes are what? Whole numbers or decimal numbers? What do you guys think? Well, clearly they have to be a whole number unless you bring in half a person and then bring in the second half and both of them can speak. Right. And remember, there was a time when the United States considered a slave, you know, three fifths of a person, right? There were 0.6 of a human being. All right. So that was, so that did occur at some point, but the voting systems were created one person, one vote, right? One to one, one person, one vote. So, so again, if you go back to basics, you would, or if I was a candidate and I got a hundred votes, it shouldn't be 100.23, right, Gary? That's correct. It has to be a whole number because it's, uh, it identifies how many people voted, not how many fractions of people voted. Correct. Right. So either I got a hundred, if I got a hundred votes and Gary, you got 200 votes. Uh, if it's stored on a computer or on some, it should be hundred and 200, not hundred point two, three, one, two, one, five, six. And Gary gets 200.7125, right? It should be a whole number. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So now let's go back and, and continue this discussion here. So, so we know the difference between an integer and we know the difference between a whole number. Now, in a computer, uh, Gary, I think you've been programming for a long time, right? You've been writing. Yeah. How I started long? programming in um, 1968, 69, 1970. Okay. So you're a little bit older than me. I've been programming since 1977, 78, you know, in the old, with punch cards and the and the old uh, CDC mainframes when I started at NYU when I was around fourteen. I think you, 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 I think Gary, you said your dad was a TV technician, right? From he, and so you you learned a lot from your dad, and you're in a, you became an electrical engineer, as I understand. That's correct. Because he was in electronics, I used to tinker around with stuff, made my crystal radio on a maybe eleven, twelve years old, and stuff like that. So I went naturally into electrical engineering. It's awesome. Yeah, so you know, there was a time we didn't have all those heat kits. We had to actually go do stuff on our own, or, or or beg and plead people to give us jobs or opportunities to play with these systems. But anyway, um, in those systems, um, whenever you wrote computer programs, uh, one of the very important things in computer programs are variables. And so, what do I mean by that? Is 
a computer is basically stupid. You have to tell a computer everything. So if you are writing a simple program, let's say to add two numbers together and put it in a third number, you have to tell that computer what are the variable types, like what kind of variable is it? Is this a quote unquote a male variable or a female variable? Or, you know, you have to, the computer doesn't know. So those are called variable types. So a variable, one type of a variable could be an integer denoted by this thing as your senior called int. So in computer code, they would use the prefix int, you know, variable x, right? That means whatever was put in variable x was a integer, which is a whole number. Alternatively, you could assign way down here a variable to be a double. Double meant that it was a decimal number. And the difference between double and float you're seeing here is how many decimal points were after that period. So in the case of a float, it could have seven digits for accuracy. In the case of a double, up to 15 digits, all right? But the important point is when guys like Gary and I are today, when everyone programs, we were very, very meticulous. And you had to be, otherwise you could have major errors on how you declare variables. So this is something you should consider. So um, integer, typically for the case of this discussion, we're gonna talk about integers, floating point or double variables. So let's take, this is what we call pseudocode. This is not real computer code. Suppose you had um, a, a, an in, a variable called A and another variable called B and a, another variable called C. You notice what I've done. I've declared all of these variables to be integers, A, B, and C. And again, to review, that means A, B, and C can only be whole numbers, one, two, three, four, five. They can't be 1.1 or 3.2, et cetera. And so here, very simple. Again, we want to keep it really simple. If A is one and B is two, and you say C, um, and you say, at, you know, into C, put A plus B, uh, what should be the number if you were to print C? Gary, obviously, it's, I, don't, I don't mean to insult you by asking, this is going to be three, right? Well, it's like one plus two equals three in most uh, right. people's minds. It should be, it's not going to be 3.5. It's going to be three, right? And obviously, Gary's right on the money. It's three, okay? Now, let me give you another example. Suppose we declared A and B to be double. Double means it's a decimal format with 17 digits. So A could be a number that could be 1.213456789910, you know, all the way up to 17. And B could be similar. But notice that the integer C or the variable C is an integer, okay? So here's an, another interesting case. In variable A, I'm putting in 1.11111, five digits. B, I'm putting in 2.22222, five digits. And what do you think C is going to be in this case when you add A plus B, Gary? Well, if you added it as a real number, it would be 3.333. But if C is declared as an integer, then the computer would actually round it down to three and you lose the decimals. Exactly, exactly. So uh, again, this is something we in computer science or we as engineers, we're very, very aware of. So some people may think it should be 3.3333, but this is because a variable, as Gary said, is declared as an integer, it's gonna round it and you're also gonna get three, okay? Correct. The point I'm making here is we as engineers, as software engineers, as electrical engineers are extremely cognizant of this, especially if you're an experienced engineer because you don't wanna make dumb mistakes because if, if this is being used in a scientific calculation, you could blow up an experiment, a bridge could fall down. This could have serious implications in engineering. Now, here's the third example. Suppose you had double, so A is declared as a double, which means can hold decimal numbers. B is declared as, 
a double, which can hold decimals, and C is declared as a double. And what would you get here? And this time, 1.1111 plus 2.22222. Gary, obviously, you're the bright student in the class. You probably know. <laughs> now you really have 3.3333. Exactly. And that's what you get. Okay. But again, the point is variables make sense. Now, um, so one of the interesting things, oh, let me just share this again. So, so you get three. Now, one of the important things, uh, so you get 3.333, okay? One of the interesting things in science and engineering is to ask the question, what is evidence, okay? And it's a very interesting question because when I started um, telling people, hey, election fraud's taking place, some people who do not have a background in engineering do not have a, actually engineering is more important than science, Gary, and I'll talk about this. What is the definition of evidence? Um, one of my uh, friends, uh, Dick Lindzen, Richard Lindzen, who was a professor at MIT, who was, by the way, one of the early, youngest people to get accepted at the National Academy of Engineering, um, he has a very good definition of uh, evidence. He says it's unambiguous predictions. So just think about this, unambiguous predictions. What that means is that if you're some system that it takes an input and it runs some mathematical process to predict the output. So an unambiguous prediction means that for that same input, you're going to get that particular output. Okay. That is unambiguous. You can predict. So uh, in science, for example, if you are trying to unambiguously, or when you're trying to apply Newton's equation, say I'm going to fire a projectile, how far would that projectile go? Well, if you have all the inputs, you can predict unambiguously over and over and over again. That's real science. So science, so evidence is unambiguous prediction. So the simple case of this is teeing it up as we talk about these selection systems, you have an input coming in into any system. The system does some kind of process and it's gonna put out some kind of output, okay? So um, if a system has integrity um, for the known inputs, for predictable and for the known inputs that you know, you're, and, and if you understand the physics of that system, you can always with integrity say what that output is, okay? Now, today in the world of voting systems in the United States, for example, the inputs, we don't have any voter ID. We don't even, you, no one on this call in the United States, if you go to vote five days later, you cannot prove to me that you voted uh, in that election. You can't prove to me that because you don't get a voter ID, you don't have a voter ID. You can't prove you went in. You don't even get a receipt. There's no authentication. So you can't, if I ask you the question, can you prove you voted in an election? The answer is no. So the input here, right here, is ambiguous. The evidence of you even voting is ambiguous. Now, the output, as we're gonna show, uh, so the input is 10 votes for A and 20 votes for B. Let's say 10 vote, 30 voters came in, 10 voted for A, 20 voted for B. The output should be 10 votes for A and 20 votes for B, right? Yep. If you have an ambiguous system. Now, that's provided the system cannot change the output. If that is possible, if, if, if it is possible for the system to change the output, then we would say there's ambiguity. And evidence, therefore, is not evidence since the output is ambiguous. So let me repeat that again. If that system, if 10 votes came in for A, 20 votes for B, you expect that. But imagine if that system has any type of capability to alter those 10 votes. So let's say the 10 votes for A could become 20 votes for A and the 20 votes for B could become five votes for B. If that was possible, 
you would say the output of that system is not evidence anymore because it's ambiguous, okay? So um, let's talk about the software mechanics of fraud. Gary, I'm not sure when, you know, when, when we studied computer science, I mean, some of this, these concepts were coming in early, but I remember when I first came to MIT, I mean, I built these systems, you know, the first email system before I came to MIT, but we all intuitively learned the concept of what we call the three-tier architecture, where you had data, which was the foundational layer where data was stored. Then you had the business logic layer where, where you know, the actual mechanics of processing took place. And you had the presentation layer, which was really known as a user interface. So you as a, soft, uh, a user of a software program, typically you never saw the business layer or the data layer. You were only interacting with the UI. So if you're using you know, Excel or Word, you don't really know what's going on underneath it as a user. You just see the nice user interface. You're writing away your documents. You can you know, do highlighting. That's a presentation layer. There's a business logic layer. And in that case, your Excel or your Word document is stored in some database internally in different formats, okay? But this is typically the architecture of all software programs. So let me, um, let, Gary, before I go into sort of, I have the an example from the Debolt system. Let you and I just sort of talk, Gary, maybe uh, in the context of input, a process and an output, um, maybe you can share with us again, your background, uh, you know, the systems that you worked on and, and, and basically educate our audience on, you know, when a ballot came in and those systems that you worked on back in the 80s, 90s, how they, one of the early voting systems, how they processed that ballot, how they, in fact, as we talked about, created a meta version of that ballot and, and they counted votes. Take it away, Gary. Sure. I was um, hired on a contract basis for a Vancouver company called North American Professional Technologies. And their task was to create this voting machine. There was a team of about five of us on the project that I can remember. There was me. There was a friend of mine, Peter. There was an industrial design company that did all the plastic case design. And there was two programmers that worked for North American Professional Technologies. And they were largely programming in Unix at that time. And this was in 1987. And the requirement was to read a ballot card that had marks along the edge. For example, something that looks like this. It's got strips down the edge and it's got a little circle where you can put somebody's, uh, pick off somebody's name. And the requirement was to read that in and find out where the voting marks have been placed, which candidates have been circled. The requirements were to make sure this was absolutely secure because at that time in 1987, there wasn't a lot of trust in electronic concept of voting. So, the idea was to make sure that something would be acceptable over the manual ballot voting. So with the team, we decided to make a scanner that would pull the piece of paper through a slot, look for the marks, count them up, and then eject the paper downwards into a, a locked bin 
a ballot bin. Then if there were any disputes, it was feasible to open the ballot bin, take all of the cards and the papers that went through and reread them through a different reader or even count them manually. And the absolute requirement was to make sure that this system was accurate and could not be cracked. The first customer that took the system on was the provincial government for British Columbia. And of course they were concerned that it had to pass their tests to be acceptable. So in the process of designing it, we made sure that it wasn't able to make a mistake. It had to be correct. However, the results of the counting process that's done electronically were stored on a memory card. That is an old fashioned card about the size of a credit card. And it wasn't a USB device. It wasn't a flash drive. It had 32 pins on it that plugged into a socket and we could, we could access the address and store the data in the memory card. That memory card was really critical in the voting process because that contained the tabulation of all the different marks that were found on the card. That uh, card had to be securely transported to the main voting station or the main polling area um, along with the ballot box. And if that card ever got lost, there would be hell to pay, basically. So as part of our work, Peter and I made absolutely sure that there was no mistakes in the electronics. However, when the card was being processed at the processing center, the programming that was written to do that was done by the two employees at NAPT. And it became obvious fairly quickly if any mistake were to be made, it would be made in that processing of the data. The card itself was solid, but the processing of it was the problem. So whoever wrote the programming to read the data from the stored card and count it up could make any sort of mistake intentionally or unintentionally and come up with a wrong result. Initially, I believe that the programmers at NAPT were very diligent to make sure that their stuff worked correctly. So for the late of the 80s and into the 90s, when the product was eventually gone through Diebold and global election systems, it became obvious that anyone, anywhere along that line, someone could modify the processing program and create artificially wrong numbers. And this was of concern from an ethical point of view, but there's nothing we could do about it because it was out of our hands once we had the data on the memory card. In engineering, we have a code of ethics, which means that we have to strictly do what is correct and not to cheat, steal, or lie, or do anything like that. So uh, our concern was that the Diebold or 
later on the global election could mess with things. But I guess they did not because the Vancouver provincial elections people approved and tested and they were happy with the system at that point in time. My real concerns came about when I see that the original optical scanning technique of counting the marks was replaced by touchscreen technology. And that ended up as the AccuVote-TS. Because once you're going to do, do touchscreen touch technology, that means you're running either on a Windows platform or on the Unix platform or on something that has more flexibility to handle the programming, which means that the processing of marks on a card can be manipulated if nefarious people decide to do so. With the original optical scanner, you couldn't fudge the information because the mark was there and it got countered as a whole number, as an integer, and stored on the memory card. But once you get into more modern computing processing with optical scanning techniques and machine interpretation, as was done in 2001 or 2002 when the TS came out, then all bets are off as to the integrity of the data. Gary, can I just, uh, just, just to review quickly, uh, for, so we're talking about pre-2001, this is sort of in the 80s and 90s, the, those early systems, right? Correct. Yeah. So um, just to appreciate what Gary just shared, if I can just sort of reiterate, Gary, when those, so these, if you can show up, if you can hold up that ballot that you had again. So, so these are these paper ballots. And if you notice, they have those marks on them. Maybe a little bit up, Gary, if you can move it up a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit more. Yep. So those little marks. Yep. Let me just give you a solo layout. If you can move, pull it back a little bit, Gary, move it back away. Yeah, there we go. Right there. It says Quincy Jones, Dorothy Hamill. Okay. So those dots are what we're talking about. Okay, great. Thanks, Gary. You can take it away. And down the edge, there are yep. the little um, strobe marks down the edge of the paper. Yeah. Those are the ones that align, line up with the ovals where the ballots have been filled in. So that's how the system found a mark. It coordinated a strobe mark and it came across and looked for a mark in a circle, which I then lined up with a particular column. So it was 80 columns across. Right. These marks, the 80 columns pasted 0.1 inch, and down the edge, there was 60 or more ticks. So that Quincy Jones, for example, it looks like from the right, it's roughly about 20 columns to the right, and about, I don't know, 15 columns down, something like that. So yep. that yeah. So the reason I wanted to share this was that the clever technique that they use in those old systems is when you put that in, in the computer, there's something called, you know, if you go back to another type of math, math that you learn, maybe in 11th grade or 12th, it's called uh, matrix math or called linear algebra. In linear algebra, you create these things called the matrix, right? It's just like an Excel spreadsheet, right? You have X number of columns and Y number of rows. And Gary, what you just said was that in the computer, you would create a, uh, a, a, a way of looking at that ballot 
by saving these columns and these rows. So when one ballot came in at location, I don't know, 10th column, 20th row was that particular ellipse. So if there was a vote for Quincy Jones, you would put one in there. If there was a vote for Dorothy Hamill, which would be another, you'd put one there. And you keep incrementing those array locations, right? That's correct. We created a six level technique. Yeah. Um, with the 80 columns across, we took eight bits of that column and stored it as one byte, which means we had to have 10 bytes to store one row. Right. Times 60 rows. So we had 600 element array. And each element, each cell in that array was either zero or one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, wherever the count came up to. Right, so it's very clever. So basically, I think the key thing is, I think the main ethical point you were making, the programmers are the ones who wrote this technology to take the ballot image and the count was manifested in a digital, it's not a, in that case, it wasn't an image, it was a digital um, uh, version or a digital storage way to store the count in a map. It was basically a map of that ballot, it's more of a map. And so every ballot that came in, you would increment those counters. But I think the key thing that I, th I thought was very important that you made was that the, I don't know, the millions or hundreds of thousands of people of British Columbia were reliant on these two programmers, their ethics, to make sure, for example, they didn't, let's say, multiply someone's vote by 10 or decrement someone. They could have easily added a feature in there, right? A hidden feature. So there's a lot of integrity that we're banking on, on making sure the engineers writing that code aren't doing anything funky. And I think that's a central point to what you're making. If I may bring up another point. Yeah. This ballot, you see there are different candidates. And like under Quincy, there's a couple of others. Yep. Now, the machine did not know what the candidates were. It strictly worked on an XY coordinate system. The application or the overlay of which coordinate corresponded to which uh, individual in the race was done later on in the processing. So the yep. memory card just had the counts in an array with no clue as to who it or what it represented. That's very interesting. So what you're saying is that the count was taking place independent of knowing who was getting what count. And that yes, was, exactly. so you basically had like, you were separating the personal identifiable information of who it was from the individual. What we today do with medical records, or we're supposed to call HIPAA. You're supposed to separate the individual from the actual data. And I think that is how there was no problem with revealing the results of an election prior to the closing time, because first of all, no one knew what the dots represented. And secondly, that was all sealed in a memory card that was locked inside the cabinet that could not be removed, read, scanned, or accessed at any time during the voting process. After the election closed, then the card could be removed and taken out and overlaid with the candidate information and counted separately. So by having it that way, we made sure that there was no um, deception involved as to knowing who 
was getting the who was getting the counts. Gary, one of the important things here is you had the original piece of paper, the scan, and then the scan is tabulating into this matrix with the memory card, and then you have the final count results. So in that chain of custody, I'm assuming in this process that you could not just take that memory card and toss it away, right? You had to save that too. Oh, definitely. If you tossed it away, that was like big problems, jail time or something. That was just fraud. Couldn't be done. Right. The, so the, that memory card was actually storing, in many ways, a digital um, uh, map of, of all of those images. I mean, all of those ballots. Yes, it's, a, it's storing a digital count at all the coordinates, no matter where they lie. Right. Yeah. So, so anyway, let me, and some of this may, so, so Gary, thank you very much. I'm just going to sort of jump back to this PowerPoint and just go and review because um, if you go back to the, the software uh, architecture, uh, we've talked about the data. The data in that case was a memory card of just storing all this data. The business logic was the one after this scan was done, it was a thing that would actually proceed to do the analysis, right? But the data got put onto these memory cards. Now, in the current, uh, what I came to find was in the current Diebold systems, you know, if you go through the manual, there's a whole process. This was, this was a 2001, and I, I brought this up, Gary, because you were saying that's when significant changes took place. So, you know, in those systems they have, you can, in the, in the user interface, you could define the election. Um, you could then um, configure uh, the apps, how, how you wanted to do absentee voting, how you want to do polling, early voting, how the election closes, essentially entire workflow process, all the way from the defining the election to preparing the ballot artwork, um, uh, what we call the client configuration, how they would see it, and so on. And then you have the uh, election preparation process, the poll voting, um, the election close. So the basically all three phases from defining the election to the vote, the support for the voting, and then actually the election close. In the Bebo manual, this is a new one, Gary. Uh, what's very interesting is Bev Harris, by the way, who did some of this very, very uh, groundbreaking work where she was a, she just went through the manual. In the 2001 manual, this is the Global Election Systems GEMS 1.8.1 release notes, 2000 and, um, June 2001. Very interestingly, they added a feature in uh, June of 27, at least we know that was the first time, could have been earlier, a weighted race type. And this is a functionality that allowed um, people to multiply the votes by a factor, okay? And this is very important because you were just saying that you know it was supposed to be whatever vote came in in the old prior to this back in the 80s 90s you made securely sure on that memory card the, the voting was updated but in this version you could have a weighted race type and just to it's a little bit hard to see here but i can show you closely here but you could have different races of people so in this case john doe right here if you can see closely let me make it a little bit bigger so it's a little bit easier to see um, there so this is right out of the manual in, in this case here, you could literally take John Doe's votes and you could multiply John Doe's votes. So in this case, if you take John Doe's votes, John who voted yes, his one vote could be multiplied by a weight of 25. So you got 25 votes for John 
Jane Doe's votes could be multiplied by 33. So if you're voting on this proposition A, you notice the total vote is 58. By the way, it doesn't have to be just a whole number, 25. It could be 25.2. Or no, in the case of Bill Smith, his votes could be multiplied by 20. So this vote becomes 58 by 2 versus 2 to 1. Okay? Similarly, is another example. So the point is, this weighted race feature is right documented right there. Weighted race are tallied by weights. This is right out of the Diebold 2001 manual. So you could set up a, an election to be weighted. Now, from what I understand, they added this feature in this. And by the way, the system, to your point, Gary, also changed. They, they did it on the data stored in a window access database. The, the code is written. The database is actually an access database, and everyone who knows about access can tell you how all the insecurities in there. And in fact, Benny Smith um, showed a programmer down in uh, Tennessee that you could literally communicate to that database at the database layer without having to do any type of password. You can go right and right into the database. Just literally open up the database, get a handle and write in. Um, but regardless, the important thing to note is they added a feature to do what's called the weighted race, as you can see here. So you can do uh, manipulation of the vote. So um, as Bev Harris put up in black voting, uh, black box voting, so in the GEMS race, table is a field called race type. By experimenting with different settings, Smith found that by inserting the number 10, a mostly undocumented setting, decimals appear in results, reports for viewing. To be clear, all votes are counted as decimals, whether or not the 10 flag is set, but toggling 10 on and off simply allows the users to view it. And here's a wonderful example where Bev Harris, as I understand, got did a FOIA request and they actually got the database, uh, Gary, from the state of Alaska's 2004 general elections. This was in November two, 2004, the unofficial results. And this was the election, it was a presidential election where John Kerry right here ran against Bush. And I think there was a couple of other independent candidates. But what do you see here? Look at that. The votes, so John Kerry's 120,360 votes are not 120,360 votes, but it's 120,360.63. Bush Cheney's votes is 95,126.02. So the votes are not stored, as we talked about in this earlier discussion, as whole numbers, they're stored as decimals. That's what they're stored as. And what, the, what, what they found was the fractional vote capabilities built into the GEM systems for all races, whether they are weighted or not. It is embedded in all locations, including states which do not have weighted elections. And it is a default setting for all races everywhere. And so, in fact, here's Benny Smith, who actually, Gary, I don't know if you saw this, he actually opened up the access database and you look at the data type, it says total votes, the nu it's a number, but look at what it is. It's double, yep, which is yep. a decimal. Okay, so the and what's so there you go. Okay, if if exactly someone said this is a three fifths amendment all over again. So I just want people just to look at this. If you don't know any programming, it's okay. But you can see in the computer, this is right from this system. Gary, you worked on a predecessor. This is the Diebold, the Gem system. The data is stored after Gary did it, which again, Gary talked about ethics, as a floating point system, which means that your the number of votes 
is not stored as one, two, three, four. It's stored as 1 1.2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, all the way up to 17 digits. That's what a double lets you do, okay? That's what we're talking about. So it's not one person, one vote. It can be one person, 0.521312 1, votes, okay? So one person, multiple votes. Or one person, multiple votes. And the reason Gary is using, you and I talked about, how did this affect my election? I never even knew about this, okay? Mm -hmm. Um, when I was running, Gary, a lot of, I mean, we knew we had won this on a landslide. The day of the election, people said, thumbs up, you won it. We had 20,000 plus, 20,000 or 30,000 donations. People like Crystal, Trey, uh, 3,000 volunteers all over Massachusetts, 10,000 lawn signs, you know, 10, 10 to 20,000 bumper stickers, 500 standouts, volunteers coming out everywhere. This other guy had no volunteers, no bumper stickers no lawn signs. Uh, and anyone who's been in politics know he who has more lawn signs wins because it means you have ground support. And this guy had nothing. Mm -hmm. And in that, what's fascinating, Gary, is in the one county in Massachusetts, which was 80 to 90% hand counted, guess who won? We did by six points. And in every other county, uh, they don't use a D-Bold system. They use what's called the DS-200 systems which again, take the ballots, they scan it. And in, the, in this case, they create the ballot image. Well, in all those towns, Gary, we in all those counties, it was 60-40 consistently, 0. 0.6, 0. 0.4, 0. 0.6, 0. 0.4, 0. 0.6, 0. 0.4. So that's when none of this made sense because all of our polls, you know, I'm a math guy, um, you know, we do a lot of effort. We knew we had won this 66-34, 60-40 in our direction. So here we see in the towns that were hand counted, hand counted, we win by five points. And in the towns that were machine counted, we, we lost to him by 20 points. So a 26% difference. And then, it's quite amazing. So then, I mean, we just knew we won. I mean, it was obvious we won. And so um, on election night, I said election fraud took place and I said, it's damn good. We have the second amendment in this country. It was obvious election fraud took place. I didn't know how, but Gary, you know, you and I being engineers, you know, when you know you have a problem in the system, you know, something's wrong and you sort of know which subsystem that's in. And then with experience, we knew the subsystem had to be how they did the counting. So that's when I got an email from Bev Harris. She gave me the insight into the old gem system. And it turned out, you know, Diebold, what you guys did was some of the most innovative pioneering work. But as that company grew, you know, many different companies, you know, copied their architecture components where derivatives were made. But as I understand, all of the voting systems have the ability to do weighted race and all of them store the vote count as a decimal number. Unlike the systems that you created, Gary, which were it seemed to be much more secure in a sense because they didn't um, because you had a couple of checks and balances, the DS 200 does, in fact, take that piece of paper that you said, when it goes in, scans it and does make an actual image, not like the map that you guys did, but an actual TIFF or GIF, like taking an iPhone picture. And it does save it. And then at some point, the machinery, and it's right out of the DS200 manual, I could bring it up, it says pattern recognition is done to find those dots and count it. And at that point, um, uh, uh, what I understand, and I haven't been able to verify this directly, is that if fractional voting is on, 
the ballot images are deleted. Okay. So in our case, when you look at a system like this, it's highly can be uh, manipulated. We went to the secretary of state of Massachusetts and we said, and we issued a freedom of information act by law. And we said, we want the ballot images because just like you said, that memory card in, in those days is the chain of custody. The ballot images are the chain of custody. And their response to us, Gary, was we turned that feature off. Now, the default factory setting on the DS200, there's three settings. Don't save images, only save the write-in images, or save all images. The default setting is, guess what? State three, always save images. So you have to go explicitly turn it to none, which is what they did, which means destroy images. It's a euphemism to say we didn't store them. The true thing is they destroyed the images because they did exist at one time. And by federal law, federal law says that anything generated in the course of an election must be saved. Massachusetts gave us this response in their email saying, we don't have to save them because we're prohibited. When I asked for the law three times and I've tweeted about it multiple times, we don't know what, what law it is. They haven't been able to show us a statute of their law. So you know, it makes no correct. sense. It makes no sense to delete any images like this because A, the new systems are not short of memory so they can save the images. And B, if you ever needed to do a recount or if there's concern, um, you'd need the images to recount. And C, there's no reason to delete the images unless you're trying to hide something. Exactly. And one of the interesting things, Gary, that is fascinating is um, you know, in the in the world of, you know, cyber theft and cyber manipulation, you can also imagine that it, the, the reason it's important to have those images in the chain of custody is you could think about someone. I'm not saying this. This is possible, but I is, you know, these are images they are digital. Anything digital is easily manipulable. So you could easily take that circle ellipse, you know, erase it and move the ellipse somewhere else. Exactly. So, it's, I mean, all of us have done image processing for many years. You know, when I was at MIT in my graduate work, I, I, I did an interesting project and not that dissimilar to this way. We used to scan bank checks and read the check courtesy amount, you know, 47.2. And we wrote some very cool AI software to try to predict that. But we would take the images and the images were stored in RAM and hard drive. And we would then look for that box amount and try to figure out the amount. But it would be very easy could have been very easy for me to add a few more characters, right? 47 point or 470.2. Yep. You know, this isn't that difficult with modern image processing tools. Yep. So, I have some concerns about that. Um, um, the ability to wait, weighted races, I think you called it. Weighted race. Yeah. And it, in fact, let me, let me bring it. It's called, a, let me bring, it's called the weighted race. I mean, I'm reading the Debo manual right here. And what's interesting is Gary, they put it in and let me bring it up right here. You can see it says weighted race. It's called the weighted race yeah. by weights assigned from the voter registration system and may be counted in central count voter system. So why was this feature put in? Well, exactly. And actually that feature is illegal from the very beginning. Because you know what it implies? Quite, quite simply, it's a totally, to use the modern vernacular, it's a totally racist feature because you could intentionally take the black people 
and weight them right down and take the white people and rate them right up so that they now you're having a, a vote on color race, not on counting race. So and it's, interesting, it's called the weighted race feature. In our case, Gary, in Massachusetts, we brought out, I mean, if you, called, if you came to our campaign, the consistent theme was, you know, in Massachusetts, you have three, you, this is a matrix of voters. You have people who are registered as a Republican, as an unenrolled, or as a Democrat. And then you have people who vote a lot, consistently vote, people who vote, sometimes vote, and people who never vote. You know who are our typical voters, Gary? Our voters are typically people who are unenrolled in neither party, and we're unlikely to vote because they never believe in the system. In these systems, you could say, oh, unenrolled, doesn't vote a lot, let's denigrate their vote, which would be Shiva voters, Make multiply their votes by 0.1 or 0.0. Right. So the fact that anyone, and this is why when I put this out there, Gary, and I started uh, promoting this on Twitter, and the Secretary of State called Twitter and shut me down, and there's a bogus, bogus fact-checking organization which Twitter and, and Facebook use called Lead Stories. Oh, yeah. Complete nonsense and, and uh, organization. And AP quotes them. And AP then inter interviewed a very stupid professor at MIT and Harvard. These guys are not engineers. They're dumb political science people. And when I was at MIT, Gary, the political science department of MIT was, was always known as CIA. Oh, that's a CIA. Okay, this is just common fact. So here they're talking to a very stupid political science professor, and I might go knock on his door and, and find out who he really works for. But regardless, he uh, was their fact checker. Okay, well he he doesn't know anything about engineering. He doesn't. He's probably never programmed. He probably doesn't even know what a bit or a byte or a long or short an integer variable is. But the fact is that that the data is stored as decimals, and the ballot images we're deleted, we're destroyed. Yeah. And, the, and, and, and these are the facts. And I think you and I, as engineers having this discourse, I hope is helping educate people what's going on in this country, in the United States, that it's pretty deplorable because unfortunately, a lot of Americans, you know, the STEM education is not teaching people math. Very few people go into the engineering disciplines anymore, probably don't really know programming what an integer floating point is. But any integer, any engineer listening to this, anyone I've shared it with, I don't care if they're Democrat, Republican, they go, oh my God, what do you mean it's stored as a decimal variable? Why is my vote a decimal or a fraction? And why were the ballot images deleted? This is, you don't have to be, this is like foundational to evidence, you know, in a system. Well, I just wanted to emphasize to make sure I'm getting my point across here. When you start weighting the candidates, with various factors, you have the ability to determine the outcome of an election based upon the color of skin. Because if the factors are set up correctly, you could make someone from Haiti win the election. Yeah, and, and, and Gary, they have it. There's got to be some sort of a law or something in the Constitution that prevents discrimination based upon race or color. Well, Gary, what's interesting is the weights can be assigned at the candidate level. So if you and I are running, your votes could be multiplied or it can be assigned at a precinct level to a particular voter. 
they have set it up in such a way that you can assign this at multiple layers. Oh, this is terrible. Absolutely. Shocking to find that. That would have never, never passed the Vancouver provincial election testing system. Would never have been allowed. Yeah. So to everyone listening, I, I hope people appreciate that Gary here, you know, was one of the early inventors of these systems, um, that the original systems had, uh, you know, at least some uh, very important checks and balances. They weren't, uh, they were creating closer to the ballot by counting and saving a piece of metadata that was uh, a reflection of, of the ballot, but yet that piece was stored on a memory card and it was importantly considered as a part, very important part in the chain of custody to later on adjudicate or audit an election. And you just didn't throw away the, the memory card. You didn't erase it, right? That I'm sure that memory card was saved. Uh, yeah, it was saved, yes. Yeah, which was, which was doing the counts. Here, the ballot images, which are used to tabulate the counts, are being destroyed. And I have to use the word destroyed because um, AP and Reuters, all which use this stupid lead stories organization run by a bunch of idiots who have no engineering experience, said, she, you know, um, it's not true. Dr. Shiva saying it was destroyed. It's not destroyed. No, they were destroyed because they were created and they set the default setting to be none, which means after it was created, it destroyed them. This is just a fact. Any computer science programmer or engineer looking at it would say, oh yeah, the images were there because if the images weren't there, it couldn't have done the counting. And then because they'd set the default setting to none, they were destroyed. So A, the images were destroyed and we can't track now the ethics of that weighted race setting. Because well, how do you do a recount if you don't have an image to reanalyze? Well, it's interesting. In Massachusetts, many states, Gary, you can't ask for a recount unless it's 1% or 2% difference. So when they cheat, they're gonna cheat big. So that's what they did here. They cheated big time. Well, let's say for example, in the case where there is only a small difference and there was no cheating involved, but it was really a close race. How can you do a recount once you've destroyed the images? Well, they would say that you can take the original ballots and rerun them through again. That's correct, but aren't they locked up in a box for 22 months or something like that? They're locked up in a box for 22 months, but you can't do a recount unless the race is close. And think about the energy and the time it takes to do a recount in all counties. You have to get all the system and you have to save the system state. By so, for close race, huh? so, for, so for close races that needed a recount, they would open the boxes, take the cards out. They open the boxes and, and, and recount them, yes. So it's too much trouble to open the boxes if clearly there is a majority in favor of the candidate who won, regardless of whether or not it was done by fraud or actuality. There you go. So what they do now is they do big time cheating. And that's why I'm convinced in the upcoming election, I think they used me. I mean, this is a federal election, Gary. This was not a state election or local election. I'm running for U.S. Senate federal office. Very significant. Big election. And the fact that the Secretary of State, the Elections Division, and what did I share on Twitter? I merely shared the images of my public communication with the legal counsel of the Election Division who's telling me, we don't have to save images. She's telling me that we destroy images. It's 
because we don't have to save them. The secretary of state cannot afford a bigger hard drive. That makes no sense. Exactly. Well, Gary, let's just calculate for people. You know, in the Republican election, about, uh, you know, um, 250,000 people voted. I mean, we could calculate roughly 250,000 people, right? 2.5 times 10 to the 5 times how many pixels. I mean, these are black and white images. You don't even need to, you just, it's just a one or a zero. You don't even need to share color, right? Yep. It's basically maybe two bits, right? Yeah. Um, even, you know, two bits times, you know, eight, what, I don't know what the resolution is, 70 dots per inch. I mean, you could calculate it. This is to store all these images. You're probably looking at probably, I don't even think it's a terabyte. You're talking about on the order of maybe a couple of gigs. You could probably put on a flat, a little USB st stick. It's not a lot of overhead. It's probably a fraction of the cost to save these paper ballots in a warehouse versus putting on a memory drive. Uh, I would agree with that. Um, yeah. Put it on a memory card or just hard drive. Well, isn't there terabytes of data available for the Wayback Machine and for all the YouTube videos that are stored and for everything else in the cloud? Yeah. Terabytes available. So yeah. what, we not afford a couple of hundred uh, gigabytes for election scanning results? That doesn't make any sense. Right. So the way I set uh, the title of this talk, Gary, I said it's the engineering of election fraud. So my view, different from the, you know, the early systems you've built, which seem to have some integrity, the modern systems are essentially built to enable election fraud at will. So you can turn on weighted race and you can delete ballot images. That's what people need to think about. Those features should never be allowed to even be, it should not even be an option. Every ballot image should be saved. You yes, should never we have a trust in an election again, knowing that these features are in there. Right. I think that's really the takeaway. Every citizen, everyone listening should wonder what three things. Why are our votes being uh, saved as decimals? Why is there these weighted race features? And three, why is there an option to t turn off ballot images? That's it. And any congressman who doesn't get this, any mainstream media person who get this, the conclusion is they're all part of the problem. And the only, that's why Gary, we decided to, you know, run, you know, in defiance, we're not walking away. Most of these politicians, you know, who basically want to position Gary, and this has happened to other people. And they go, okay, I lost. I guess I won't be mayor. I'm going to have to go find a job, right? The problem is we as engineers already have jobs. We can get a job anywhere time we want because uh, we know how to act. We have skills. So we're moving forward with this write-in campaign. And, and, the interesting thing, Gary, is in a write-in campaign, everything has to, you can write in Dr. Shiva and you have to put on that ellipse. But one small advantage we may have here is that these have to be hand counted. Okay. These Correct. have to be counted by a human being. Mm -hmm. So um, anyway, Gary, I'm just going to uh, tell people, we're going to ask people to support the campaign, but I really appreciate your time. And I hope everyone uh, values Gary's, uh, uh, amazing information here, just walking us through the history of this. And at a time, Gary, when you built these, you know, you, there was, there was a time when engineers, you know, were really, um, uh, had, you know, the, had integrity, the, had integrity, yep. you know, when you look back at, you know, the, uh, you know, I used to teach a course at MIT called systems visualization. 
And in one of my degrees is in design and uh, scientific visualization. One of my uh, great heroes was Edward Tufte. I don't know if you know him from Yale. Edward Tufte, you can look at his book if people want to call the visual display of data. And Tufte um, was really about figuring out how you have complex data and how to you know, uh, display it. What you would call the modern infographic, okay? But he was looking at other ways to do it. But Tufte wrote a very interesting essay talking about the Challenger crash that took place, um, you know, with Morton Firecall. If everyone remembers around 1983, the space shuttle um, was about to go up, 83 or 86, I forget, in the 80s. And I remember, I used to love watching the space shuttle launch. And I remember waking up, it was like five in the morning, and I turned on the TV and I see icicles on the side of the space shuttle. And I said, wow, that's weird. Why are they gonna do a launch? I've never seen icicles. And and we turned the TV off, woke up at 8.30, and they showed the space shuttle blowing up. Yep. And it turned out that there were these things called the O-rings, which were on the space shuttle, which were the sealants. And the engineers on that project knew months before that, that the O-rings under certain temperatures um, could not withstand those temperatures and it caused a serious accident. The engineers actually showed this data to the management. Management had all the data and management decided not to listen and still do that launch because Morton Fire called the contractor, got big money from NASA, right? If they called it off, they were gonna lose money. Yep. Tufty in his document was arguing that had the engineers presented the data in a certain way, maybe the managers would have gotten. Anyway, I, I used to use that paper when I used to teach my MIT class, but I said, look, this doesn't have to do even with the display of information. It has to do with the fact of money and ethics, that those managers, regardless of even if they did the best presentation, were still gonna uh, have that space shuttle take off. And what we have today is a consolidation of immense amount of power. Uh, in, in Massachusetts, I think LHS is a company here. There's a few companies which control these voting systems. And one phone call, you know, you can flip elections. So there is no checks and balances in these systems at the ethical level, or for that matter, that the fact is that these features are embedded into these systems. So that's that's where we are, Gary. And, and that's why I think people like you and I, working people, whether you're an electrician, a plumber, a mother, a teacher, when we start getting involved in elections and start participating, I think this sends even more fear into the heart of the establishment. And that's why they flipped us. This was an attack on working people. This election flipping that took place as fraud was a direct attack on working people who voted for us and supported us. They don't want one of us to ever come up, Gary. That's my conclusion of this whole thing. They have to flip them and they have a switch that they can throw. It seems like that. And given this weighted race and all these other uh, deleting of images so things cannot be recounted, this begs the question, how many previous elections need to be scrutinized for possible fraud as well? When yeah. did it begin? Was it beginning with you or has it been going on sometime before that? I think it's been going on for a long time. And I think that ultimately the working people of this country have to rise up. Um, you know, the federal, this is the federal government in, in mass in, in the, at the federal level, it's, it's black and white here. The federal law says you have to store for 22 months, all records, all records. 
So if they're not going to do something about this, that means the federal government is corrupt. That means Republicans and Democrats have been involved in this game for a long time. They're one. They keep out working people. They keep out outsiders. So it may have to come to, you know, where, you know, I don't even trust lawsuits anymore, Gary, because we know the lawsuits. They own all the judges. They appoint their judges. So it's really about for us building a movement. And uh, in closing, Gary, I'm just going to share with people uh, about the campaign, where we're at. But I really appreciate your time, Gary. Thank you very, very much. Thank you very much for having me this opportunity to present the history behind the voting machines, which at one point were trustworthy. Yeah, thank you. Gary, you're welcome to stay on. I'm just going to share a few things, or if you want to sign off, that's up to you. I'll just uh, sit and watch. Okay, great. So to, so to everyone who's listening, I just wanted to thank Gary again uh, for joining us. The most important takeaway from this is that with the consolidation of power, not only political power, but also technology power, with a flip of a switch, that you can literally control democracy. So I really call this controlled democracy. And the fact that we in Massachusetts um, are the ones who have to expose this on a grander level, the fact that uh, perhaps people will take it seriously because there have been others like Bev Harris who worked very hard, Benny Smith, what occurred to Tim Canova down in Florida. But maybe the four degrees I got from MIT, maybe that MIT PhD, maybe the 50 years I put into programming, maybe that credibility will make people start to say, wait a minute, MIT guy is saying this, maybe we should listen to him. Uh, and if not, then maybe we have to create uh, movements, you know, very dynamic, vibrant, militant movements that fight in our favor. And that's why what I wanna share is, we are not walking away. Our campaign is moving to a write-in campaign. So when you get your ballot in Massachusetts, whether it's mail-in or whatever you wanna do, it's up to you, that's another discussion. You can find that section of the ballot where it says Senator, and instead of voting for lawyer one or lawyer two, by the way, I'm running against two idiot lawyers, okay? Two morons were part of the same problem. So. You, so, and some very stupid Republicans say, oh, I don't want to split the vote. Well, you're an idiot because it's not about splitting the vote. It's about them stealing our vote. One of these two lawyers from working people. So, but what you can do is you can simply write in Dr. Shiva in that write-in space and make sure you, you fill in that circle and you have to write in Dr. Shiva. We're getting tons of people. And by the way, take your iPhone and take a picture. Um, the, the governor of Massachusetts was part of this crookedness passed a law saying, oh, it's against the law if you take a selfie with your ballot. I say, screw that. Violate the law, do some civil disobedience. It's your ballot, because if they're not saving the ballot images and they're violating federal law, take an image of your ballot and save it, because that's what we need to do. So um, in a, on a practical note, what I need everyone to do is, um, our key to success here is, you know, we spent close to three quarters of a million dollars, all those donations, all of you gave us and we plowed it into TV and radio. In order to win this write-in campaign, one of the critical features is everyone knows our campaign. They know us, they love us, but they need to know that we're moving to a write-in. So we wanna raise about $250,000 in a very quick fashion and put it into TV and radio. So I know there's millions of you who support us. Uh, I hate asking for money. And whenever I ask for money, I always like to give you guys something. So what I wanna, uh, do everything. It's a special offer that we're doing right now is those of you listening out there, um, 
I need you to go to Shiva for Senate and tell all your friends to donate to support our campaign. And typically when you donate to our campaign, let me, uh, we just blasted this email out. Let me bring this up before I go here. Let me stop here. Let me share this screen here. Uh, those of you who want to support us and we need your support, I sent out an email to a lot of people and the email basically says um, that when you support our campaign and if you give us $5, I'm going to give you the system and revolution ebook and the access to your body or system software, which you used to have to pay 25 bucks for. But anyone who donates between now and the next 15 to 20 days, even if you just donate five bucks, you get the book and the access to the software. So if we get 50,000 people giving five bucks, we hit our goal. Or if those of you donate 50 bucks, I, not only will you get that, but you'll also get a powerful tool that I've created, an online course I created where you can learn systems thinking uh, and a systems approach to your body, to all systems, which I normally sell for 250K. You can get it for 50 bucks. So let me, let me repeat that. Anyone who donates $5 will get access to the very powerful book called System and Revolution, where you can understand the principles of all systems and then you can also get access to this tool called Your Body, Your System. Anyone who donates, and this used to be 25 bucks, so you get it for five. So it's a giveaway. And anyone who donates 50 bucks um, gets access to my five-part course called Foundations of Systems. You get access to the Systems Health Portal. You get the book and et cetera. And so, um, and, and let me give you a little more details on that. So just to be clear, um, we need to raise $250,000. But when you donate to our campaign, I want to teach you the engineering systems principles of all systems. The book I have, System and Revolution, teaches you those principles. And those principles you can carry with you for life. You can give it to your friends. Um, so if you go to the donation page right here, Shiva for Senate donation, you get access to the book as well as this for five bucks. And then uh, if you for 50 bucks, you get access to a number of things. So um, the tool your body, your system um, is accessible right here. And what you can see with this tool is, I, uh, for my Fulbright work, I was able to link traditional systems of medicine with Western engineering systems theory. And using this tool, you can answer a set, set of questions. You can figure out what kind of system you are. You can understand how your body deviates from system and how with the use of different inputs, food, exercise, et cetera, you can bring your body back to you. For those of you who donate, $50 or more, you can go to, um, I will give you a uh, the institute that I created, that I did again by myself, I created a whole set of courses called Systems Health. And there's a Foundations of Systems course that includes you know four courses plus the Systems Health tool. You also get the book and you can also get certified in Systems Health and you get access to the portal. You get that not for 250 bucks, you get that for 50 bucks. So basically, I need everyone to donate at least $5. For those of you who want to be more magnanimous, donate 50 bucks. We need to raise 250K in the next five days so we can let everyone know that we're not running away, we're writing a write-in campaign. That's what we need. That's how we fight the establishment. And by the way, all these tools that I'm sharing with you, it was created by me. This wasn't created by others. I wrote the books, I wrote the software, and this is really my gift to you. So anyway, everyone, we need your support because this is more than just an election campaign. Um, this is a campaign for truth, for freedom, and for health. 
And just remember this, the middle class, the working class in this country, and for that matter, throughout the world is being squeezed. It's being squeezed and squeezed and squeezed. In the last three months, four months, 600 people, 600 billionaires made $2.3 trillion. And in those same six months, 39 million Americans lost their jobs. 20% of small businesses, restaurants are out of business. So this has nothing to do, if you wanna be really stupid and say, oh, I'm a Republican, I'm a Democrat, I'm an unenrolled, well, you gotta move beyond that because if we don't have fair elections, you have nothing. And if, if we allow the squeezing to take place, eventually fighting for freedom itself will become a luxury. And you don't wanna to get to that point. So that's why our winning is very important. We need engineers, we need mothers, we need black, uh, not blacksmiths, we need, you know, um, plumbers, electricians, people who work in office. And I'm telling you this, we're gonna have poll workers this time, you know, watching what they're doing. But anyway, I wanna thank everyone. Gary, stay on, um, but you gotta get out there and, and support this election. And if you can't support it monetarily, um, what you can do is you can um, go, go to the Shiva for Senate site, which I'll go back to again, and you can literally go to that site. And um, let me go back. And you can, one of the things you can do is you can volunteer. We need people, if you can't donate, then please give of your time. If you, if you want to, let me go back here. Uh, sorry. I got to cancel this. Let me share my screen again. If you can't donate, what one of the cool things you can do is you can donate your time. You can go right to the website here. You can click on the volunteer link right over here. And as a volunteer, you can help us make phone calls. You can just sign up right here. And there's a link here called, I would like to make phone calls right here. And we need people to help make phone calls to citizens in Massachusetts to let them know that we're running as a write-in candidate. And by the way, this is quite, it may seem that what we're doing is something quite extraordinary, but two US senators have actually successfully won write-in campaigns. One was in Alaska, Lisa Murkowski, and the other was many years ago, Strom Thurmond. So anyway, that's it, everyone. Get out and support this campaign. Donate $5, please, it's easy. We need 50,000 people to donate $5 or 5,000 people to donate 50 bucks, okay? That's what we need so we can educate everyone out there what's going on. Thank you, everyone. Be the light. Let's win this fight. Thank you.